Hello and welcome to another episode and for this season, the last episode of We Ain't Got No Podcast, We Ain't Got No History's official Chelsea podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Funnel, and as always, I am joined by my fellow co-host, Ram. Ram, what a season it's been. How are you doing? Hi, Jimmy. It's uh, it's, been a, it's been an interesting season, I guess, and the fact that we're recording this after having played one friendly just kind of goes to show how messed up the timelines are at the moment. <laughs> Hmm. And given the fact that the season is starting in a couple of weeks, but yeah, it's a, probably a good time to look back at the season just gone by and yeah, let's get to it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think we're all absolutely buzzing for the next one for multiple reasons. But before we're going to go and talk about this past season and what we expect for the next, we are welcoming a returning guest, uh, a former We Ain't Gun History uh, contributor a very well-known uh podcaster fellow podcast and writer in the chelsea community and generally footballing community joe tweedy thank you and welcome to the podcast yeah good day gents no it's a it's a pleasure to be here and uh yeah i think as ram said it's nice to do an end of season podcast after we played our first pre-season, pre-season friendly so uh yeah it's, it's such a strange time at the moment but yeah always always glad to jump on and, and talk things chelsea Yes, sir. Uh, as both of you already mentioned, it is, of course, a bit weird with the timeline, but it has given us quite a few things to look even more forward to. I mean, we were all excited about the signings, but now we've seen two of them already show some very promising signs. So we already can see this season will have quite a big impact because of these new signings. But we had a very successful season. Uh, comparatively uh, or because of the uh, circumstances that we had to deal with over the past year and as said quite successful we got into the top four we came to a cup final even if we were disappointed a bit and yeah we had performers we had ones that were somewhat underwhelming I think as many have already also done on various podcasts this keep sell uh loan kind of structure is one that one should always get into because it is a very interesting perspective to look at how the new players how the old players will be playing under frank lampard or might play leather because we don't know of course for sure next season um but we ram and i with our last guest, we spoke about January Frank Lampard season um, in our last podcast, so we will not be talking about that, Joe, but I'd really be interested to hear just your general feeling about this season with regard to Frank Lampard's tenure, his first year, despite all the, as said, circumstances they had to deal with before we get into the players. Yeah, I think um, largely, I think that the season has been successful. Um you know, I think that in the context of of how things have progressed through the year, I think people have often kind of forgotten that you know Lampard is incredibly sort of immature in terms of his sort of managerial experience. You know, this being his his second year in management, second job as well. Um, you know, not being able to really have the continuity of being able to manage for for two successive seasons at a, a single club. So, I think realistically, from from his perspective. Um, 
you know, on, on the plus side, I feel that he has the, the man management skills and the, I think the, the ability to manage um, kind of top level players. I think often, certainly from, from my perspective, that when you are a manager of a top football team, top club, I think sometimes people get bogged down in, in wanting to have sort of these kind of tactical professor types running the club. And we've seen them certainly at Barcelona and, and a few other clubs, um, Nick uh, Kovac at Bayern Munich, et cetera, who are absolutely fantastic tacticians, fantastic genius when it comes to coaching, but they don't have the, the touch, the way to manage sort of top tier, um, top tier teams. And I think Lampard, for me, the positive from the season was that he, he was able to demonstrate that ability to, to navigate a, a squad that still has plenty of senior players and players that have won plenty of trophies. Um, and I don't think really that enough has been made of his ability to strike a balance between, you know, really sort of creating uh, an equal footing for academy players within the mm. squad and within the context of the squad. Um, you know, often we've seen these kind of tokenistic gestures where, you know, Loftus-Cheek comes on for 12 minutes under Mourinho and it's dubbed academy day, etc. Um, <clears throat> but for me, I think this was the first season where I felt that there was real equal parity between the, the young players and the, and the senior professionals. And I think that, that realistically probably doesn't happen under any other manager. I think, as you alluded to, given the circumstances around the season, the fact that, the, that we would need to rely on these returning um, youngsters and, and obviously some guys being promoted from the academy, that his ability to, to create this, this functioning setup, this functioning squad from, from <clears throat> what is, you know, quite a, I think, quite a big gap in terms of experience, obviously experience in playing for Chelsea as well. But the way he managed that, I think, was, was really, really critical. Um, and, and sort of on the, the, the things probably more on, a, on an improvement standpoint, I think at times um, there was a little bit, I think, inconsistency in, in or maybe a little bit uh, naivety in how we, we approach certain games. Um, you know, I, I, I firmly believe, obviously, that you want to try and, and implement your style of football, your, your way of playing as, as quickly as possible. But you know, going from, from two coaches in Conte and Sari who have a very structured way of coaching the game, you know, positional based in training, a lot of this sort of uh, patterns of play, set, set movements, set yeah. structure. Going from that to this kind of almost slightly freeform style of attacking football, I think that maybe the transition between A and B could have managed, been managed a little bit more in sort of, sort of a, a kind of iterative fashion, you know, a little bit more progression rather than sort of just chucking all the players in and, and expecting them to be able to switch off, basically being told effectively what to do for, for, for you know, the, the best part of three seasons. So I think that management between implementing the philosophy and style, I think that could have been done a little bit more gradual. Um, and I think going into this season, the big thing to work on will just be the gaps in, in level of performances. You know, you look at some of our games, the City, the City game post-lockdown, Everton before the lockdown, um, and then compare that to West Ham, to Bournemouth, to some of these games where we've been really, really poor. For me, the gap between our, our good performances and our bad performances, that, that has to decrease. You know, if you want to be a good team, if you want to start putting pressure on the likes of Liverpool and Manchester City, you know, you have to increase the benchmark or, you know, the acceptable benchmark of performance. I think sometimes maybe it's, it's due to the, the makeup of the squad, um, maybe a little bit due to, to Lampard's sort of tactical naivety at times, but there's an element of, for me that there has to be a, a better baseline of performance because I would like to see that gap, you know, between when we're really good, we look fantastic, when we're really bad, we really do look pretty bad in some games. Um, so I'd just like to see that, that gap closed a bit. So I think overall very impressive. Um, you know, as I said, the, the transition from two managers who really are very structured to Lampard's slightly more free form kind of style of coaching, 
I think that that's often a point that, that people miss in terms of how easy it is for players to pick up again, um, start thinking a lot more, a lot more for themselves, uh, making you know, being empowered to make decisions effectively. Um, but yeah, I think it, overall, I think he had a good season. You know, if you look at all the, the preseason predictions, I think only a handful of people had us finishing in the top four. Um, he probably overperformed early, um, and then maybe kind of regressed. To, I mean, I, I thought we were kind of a third, fourth place team at the beginning of the season. Um, Maybe that was more sort of optimism than, than based in reality. But I think we kind of finished kind of where I think we, we were. Um, but obviously, the point, the point being that we are still like 30 points-ish off of, uh, off of Liverpool and off of challenging. So big, big work to do, big gap to close. But I think Lampard, certainly with the, the signings that we're making and potentially looking to make, can close that gap. And obviously, another, another season under his belt, another year of, of hopefully um, you know, refining his ideas, refining his approach, refining his implementation style. I think that means he can uh, potentially close that gap in, in year two. Could definitely hope for it because that would be fantastic. That is, I think, the biggest challenge for Frank Lampard now in the upcoming season. Oh, by far, yeah. I mean, of course, people always talk about the defensive frailties and uh, has he got the tactical astuteness to drill our defenders to be <clears throat> defensively more sound? Difficult question as well, but I think with the consistency issues, that is definitely one thing that, to be fair, hasn't already been around pre-Lampard. Maurizio Sarri had the same, Antonio Conte had the same, Jose Mourinho had the same. This has been, for me, something inherently the case where our players, that we've been struggling for consistency ever since the old guard really left. Yeah. Um, and that is a major issue. With all the incomings, maybe Lampard can give us uh, this solidity where even if we might not have a good game, we'll grind out results. And that's what makes you champions, basically. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. I uh, fully agree that that will be the biggest challenge. Um, yeah. And talking about players, Ram, we've had a few good performers this season, a few less so. There has been this major debate about Kepa for more or less the entirety of the season. And if we now dive into the players per se, who's been your standout performer? Who's been the one that has disappointed you the most? Standout performer and who's disappointed me the most. Um, yeah. Disappointing me the most would have to go... It's, it's kind of a toss-up between... Okay, actually, I'm just going to say Kepa. I don't want to say Emerson because I might hurt your feelings. And I don't want to do that. So <laughs> I'm just, uh, just going to say Kepa because he, he has been massively disappointing. To be, to be honest, I, I, I knew nothing about him when we signed him uh, out to replace Kota. And obviously the price tag was huge. And he came from a team of a decent standard, of course, uh, albeit they do like to pump up their release clauses, but yeah, I, I kind of, uh, I kind of ha didn't have many expectations from him, but somehow he seems to have uh, fallen short of those as well. So that hasn't been great. I, I mean, I do, I do hope he can have some sort of massive redemption arc, but I just, it's kind of difficult to see it the way it, it, it kind of looks the way it did with Morata or with. Pakayoko, it just you kind of get the sense that it's not going to work out. So pro probably Kepa, yeah, most disappointing. Uh, and then the one who impressed me the most, my standout, 
I, I am biased, so you'll have to uh, you'll have to <laughs> get, uh, allow me a small concession on that. But I'd probably say Mason Mount. <laughs> Maybe that was predictable, but mm. I think I think he's just kind of made himself indispensable. The Lampard starting eleven, more or less indispensable anyway, and. Being being as big a fan of Mason Mount as I've been over the years, and following his uh, senior career in like every game he's ever played, it's uh, I mean I definitely didn't expect him to become as big a player for us as he has in this one season. I mean, maybe I did kind of expect him to start the first few games, and then I thought he might tail off a bit, and Lampard might give him a rest. But it's just a uh, He's he's played more minutes than every other Chelsea player this season, hasn't he? And that's it's pretty incredible, uh, given the fact that he has almost seamlessly made a step up from the championship and become so important. So yeah, he he probably does have things to improve on, uh, such as probably his progression into the final into the final third and in the final third in terms of passing has been improving, but it could get better. Uh, just things like that and decision making in the final third. He, uh, I know he frustrated frustrated people on several occasions where he chose to have a gamble from long range instead of perhaps passing to a teammate in a more dangerous position, so on and so forth. But yeah, it's uh, I, f- I feel as if it's only it's only upwards from here. Even though someone like Kai Havertz might be coming in, but yeah, Mason Mount is. Uh, He's my guy for the season. He's just, uh, he's exceeded my expectations by a large margin. And it's, it's genuinely given me a very wholesome feeling throughout the season. So yeah, that's my that's my long-term explanation for it. Anyway, Joe, how about you? Who have been your standout and probably the one that you've been most disappointed with? I think I would have actually gone with the same players, but uh, for the sake of a bit of diversity, I'll try and think of uh, of two others. Um, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the Kepa one, and I think Ram will know the numbers better than, than me at this point, but someone being like historically the worst goalkeeper, um, I think that kind of pretty much says everything about their, their particular season. But I think in terms of disappointment, I would probably go with Antonio Rudiger. And the reason that I would go with Rudiger is I think you know, as someone who had certainly had an investment in Tomori and Zuma. And yeah, you know, they, they weren't, by any stretch of the of imagination, they weren't a perfect pairing. Um, but I felt that they were kind of, they were developing something at the time. And I think when Rudiger came, Rudiger came back into the side post-injury, that there was an expectation on me that he would at least improve the side defensively. Um, and I just think too many times this season that he has this, this personality of being this leader, this organiser. But I think that a lot of the times what I see to him is, is the complete opposite of that in most cases. I think he's quite chaotic. I think he gives away really, really bad three kicks in dangerous areas. I think he's very rash. Um, you know, I don't think he's particularly quick, particularly strong. Um, you know, and in terms of his sort of just pure defensive skill set, you know, as sad as it is to say, I mean, in terms of sort of his, his sort of really significant injury that he had at Roma, um, I just don't, I don't think he's got back to the level of player that potentially we were looking at before then. Um, you know, I, I feel that he is disruptive and certainly in that area as the senior professional, the senior, you know, the senior kind of guy in the partnership, 
I just don't see enough from, from him in terms of, of leadership, in terms of being able to organise a back four, in terms of getting his midfielders in positions to stop counter-attacks or, or actually any, any kind of real sort of tactical instruction I don't see coming from him. Um, you know, I've, I've heard an interview from Billy Gilmore where he says that Rudiger talks to him a lot, which is great. Um, but I, I don't, I just don't see that translating to the rest of the team. And yes, you know, it, it certainly comes from having a, 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 you know, incredibly poor goalkeeper behind you. But for, for someone who I think has the profile of being a leader, there was a time last season, when I think, you know, there were certain parts of the fan base were touting him as a future captain that I would expect, uh, I would expect more from, from him in that respect. So, yeah, I think he's probably been the, for me the biggest disappointment. And in terms of the, the kind of the the best player or the, the sort of the the, the most positive one, beyond Mason, um, I mean, and again, I would say that this this probably reflects my opinion that I don't think anyone really for me stood out over the course of a, a season in terms of consistency. So, with that being said, I probably would go twenty twenty Olivier Giroud. Um, I think the way that he he led the line, the way that he acted as a a target man as a reference point for the team. I think when he came in and Tammy had that little bit of dip in form that really could kind of showed you what sort of a physical centre forward can do in this Chelsea side. You know, I, I certainly think in terms of his, his form post lockdown, he was a pretty big reason why we ended up finishing in the top four, not just his, his, that sort of goal scoring patch that he went through, but as I say, I think his ability to bring others into play to, yeah, to really sort of knit the team together, to to bring in wide players, to bring in midfielders, to allow the team to relieve pressure. I think all of these sort of skills that he has. And again, if I'm Tammy Abraham, I'm looking at, at how I can add some of this kind of, uh, of sort of Giroud's kind of base level skill set, how I can add some of this into my own game. But I think that ability that he had was a big, big reason why the, the team started looking a bit better and why we sort of qualified in top four. And certainly when it comes to, I think, other other players starting to play well, um, I think Christian Pulisic and him had a nice sort of rapport developing. Um, but I think I, I give I give Giroud a lot of credit for that. But I just think that that sort of season centre forward role that he played, um, yeah, was for me pretty critical for us to to actually finish in the top four. And given obviously the, the financial implications of that, I think we we all know kind of how important that is for the club going forward. So yeah, well, I, I would probably go you know overall my overall MVP would probably be Mason Mount, largely you know for the reasons that Ram said. I just think he was just so consistent in terms of his his kind of output, I suppose. And yes, you know, he's not a classic number 10 and he's not a left winger, but, you know, he he is the embodiment of the style of football that Lampard wants to play. You know, his ability to press, to counter-press, to to play at pace, to to be aggressive, to be physical, to want to be, you know, aggressive in possession. I think that's largely why why Mount is is probably one of the first names on the team sheet. But as I say, for the, for the sake of diversity, I think Giroud sort of 2020, I thought he was he was excellent, largely in, in the majority of games that we played. So I'd go with Giroud and uh, and Rudiger. All four of them, very good picks, I must say. Um, I mean, I can only emphasize once more what you said about Antonio Rudiger. I have had loads of problems with him as well. Uh, every time one watches him, including yesterday, it just... I'm nervous. I can't. I can't watch him on the ball. He's so awkward sometimes yeah. on the ball. Not sometimes. Often actually nowadays, and you never know what's going to happen. Now is he going to completely fudge things up? Is he going to have a brain fart? Is he going to have try uh, or have a go at a pass, a crossfield pass, which never seems to really uh, reach a player? Is 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 come to a point where 
even Jake Clark Salter infused me with more confidence than Antonio Rudiger. And that is sad. Maybe that's a bit of a exaggeration because Clark Salter's only played one game in a friendly yesterday. But tomorrow, anyone, anyone, even Cesar Piliqueta at centre-back, I would trust more than Antonio Rudiger. And I'm very grateful that Thiago Silva has come in to hopefully shore up that defence. But as you said, for the sake of uh, diversity here, I will take another name, but Antonio Rudiger would have actually been my pick as well, even ahead of Kepa. Um, but who's disappointed me the most, and it's quite ironic because Ram said he didn't want to upset me, is actually Emerson. I had so, so high expectations of him after the first few months, the first few weeks of the season. You know, I'm always someone who likes to debate about things, but I, I, I would never let myself be told anything different than that Emerson was our best player from August to end of September. He was so, so good. I thought, damn, finally, we've got a left back that we can count on. And then he got that injury, and I don't know, he never came back. Quite quite literally, it seems as if he never really came back. And that was so disappointing for me because I really like the player. I watched him frequently uh, during his Roma days, and that player that I saw there, that's why I always wanted to have at Chelsea. And I thought this is going to be a fit for many years. Unfortunately, that's not the way it's how it's turned out. I mean, it would be highly surprising if Emerson would survive this summer and would still be playing for Chelsea next season. It just can't really happen. I really do think that Marcus Alonso will be staying. And so his Chelsea career will end unglamorously, really. Uh, yeah, I, that's got to be my biggest disappointment. Next, of course, the two already mentioned ones who are the standout ones. Coming to the my choice in regard to who has performed the most this season. Uh, I mean, Mason Mount... Objectively speaking, he he would have to be the choice, really. I mean, Mateo Kovacic, also fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. I would even argue that he's been the most consistently good player, who's, even when the team wasn't having a good day, he was usually having a pretty decent to good game at the worst. So I think Mateo Kovacic has been a very good choice for Chelsea's player of the season, uh, which he was voted only the other week. Um, yeah, I mean, that connection between midfield and attack, which he's able to dribble past three, four players and then not always get the final pass right, but often that is something that we've been lacking and I'm very, very grateful that we did buy Mateo Kovacic last year when we had the chance me and a lot of other people were saying, yeah, not worth it. He, only if we like only pay 35 million quid or something for him. Thank God no one listens to the fans on that Chelsea hierarchy. I mean, I have to say that was a very astute signing from uh, the Chelsea board. And I'm very grateful that Lampard saw something in him that many Chelsea fans, including myself, did not. And yeah, so Mateo Kovacic might be the more 
um, general choice here, but I think he, he really does deserve it. Christian Pulisic would have also been a contender, but due to his injuries, it's difficult. Uh, but he has shown glimpses where maybe next season we'll be seeing or naming his name. But yeah, that's that's those will be my two choices. I think are all very accurate. Question is now, of all these players, do we keep them? Do we sell them? Do we loan them? I mean, seems very certain that, of course, the ones that we said these were our standout performers, they will stay. But of the three um, players that have been named, uh, Ram, what do you think? Should we keep them? Give them another chance, as you already said with Kepa? Uh, should we sell them? Should they be loaned? What do you think? Um, well, with Kepa, I mean, if you consider this on a case-by-case basis, then if we're talking about Kepa, I would, how I'd basically handle the goalkeeper situation this season would be to bring in like a number two who isn't necessarily very expensive. So the financial outlay on that would be low. And he'd be, so the thing is, if Kepa's um, performance was replaced with that of a league average goalkeeper last season, then we'd probably be better off in terms of how many goals we conceded. So if you get someone with, um, doesn't have to be the same quality on the ball, but then at least least of a league league average standard in terms of uh, shot stopping and claiming crosses, basically dominance in the area. If we get in like a second choice keeper uh, with those attributes, who isn't very costly, then Kepa can, I don't know, maybe start the season as a starter. And if Mm. he looks to have completely lost his mojo, then his place is probably going to go to whoever we bring in. So I assume that's kind of the plan with them bringing in Edward Mendy as well. I mean, if those rumors are true. Or Onana, whoever it is. Basically someone who costs about 25 to 30 and isn't a very high risk signing, but can potentially uh, take Kepa's place in the team quite easily. So, uh, yeah, it's probably pretty difficult to sell him. If If it were possible to sell him, then yeah, I, w- I would have would have preferred that. Uh, it pro- it'd probably be the best for either party, but this is probably the best middle ground that can be taken for this situation. So that's uh, that's what I do with Kepa anyway. And before I before I ask Joe about Rudiger, we will take a short break. And welcome back. Uh, as I was just about to ask Joe. Antonio Rudiger, he, uh, he's been a, well, I think now people's opinions are converging more or less, but I think he has been a pretty divisive figure over time. Mm. Although, um, regardless of how he started, he, uh, things have kind of turned sour now and he doesn't, doesn't inspire much confidence when he is part of the defense these days. So would you, would you just cut him loose at this point at the expense of uh, probably keeping Tomori around instead? Or what, what, would, what would you do with him? Yeah, I think if, if given the opportunity to sell would come, I would certainly look at exploring it. I think part of the allure of the Thiago Silva signing, from my perspective, is the, is the impact potentially that he can have on a young group of, of, of centre-backs. You know, I look at sort of Kimpembe and Marquinhos at PSG, how they sort of flourished under his kind of 
don't want to say sort of mental, kind of mental kind of role that he's played, but certainly having someone of that experience and, and presence and ability around them, very similar to sort of Marcel Desai when JT was kind of breaking through in sort of the late 90s, um, kind of envisaged potentially a similar sort of relationship with Silva, with Zuma, with Tomori, potentially Christensen as well. Um, I just think, yeah, when it comes to three together, it's, um, yeah, it's just my confidence levels in him as a player uh, are just not there anymore. Um, and I think that he's often picked because he is an experienced figure. Um, and that probably is is something that, you know, if he goes and that, that kind of question moves away. But I did feel a little bit, certainly, when when he came back into the side that, uh, you know, we did look a lot worse defensively than when Tamori and Zuma were playing as a pair. So for that alone, I mean, yeah, you know, and then you start looking into the the potential financials of a deal. I'm not sure what sort of fee that Chelsea would be looking for in terms of Rudiger or who the potential suitors would be. But yeah, I think there, there comes a point where you just have to evaluate the situation. And I would assume by now, if Chelsea were serious about retaining him, they probably would have offered him a contract. I think he, he maybe has, what, two years left, I think, on the deal. Um, so I'm assuming Chelsea probably would have looked to to renegotiate now, either to bring down the, the amortisation of, of the player or just obviously just to extend it because they want him around. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I could see him potentially moving to, to another team in Germany, maybe back to Italy. Um, but yeah, he, he is a player that I think that I just don't see being a, a really sort of significant part of the, the future of the club. I, I would say that again, me sort of just speculating on contract offers that the fact that he hasn't received an offer, certainly that, that I know of or that I've read about, um, would to me sort of intimate that the club maybe don't see him as a, a vital part of the of the machine moving forward. Um, yeah, and again, you know, I, I know it's a preseason friendly and I'm not going to take massive conclusions from that, but to come on and then three minutes later give away a penalty, <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, I, it was just sort of like the embodiment of why I think, as, as Ram mentioned, a lot of the the opinions on Rudiger are sort of converging to maybe he's a little bit sort of surplus to requirements. So, yeah, I mean, I would, I would try and look to, to sell him, but... As we know, in terms of offloading players, we pay players very well. That's often difficult to offload the contract. And then given the the commercial impact that COVID has had globally on football clubs, I'm not sure who could really afford maybe a 20, maybe a 30 million pound bid that Chelsea would, would maybe, you know, sort of looking to generate from, from a player sale. So there is that kind of aspect of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, given the opportunity, I would, I would take uh, 25 million pounds for him gladly and just move him on and, and his contract. And then look at Silver to to pair with one of the, the younger guys for the season, and I think we, we would probably improve quite drastically. Yeah, that's a good point you made about his contract. He has two years left, and if he were to receive an extension, the time would probably be sometime soon. But yeah, uh, maybe may, maybe they'll um, if they do try to offload him, it might be in a slightly long drawn long drawn style as we tend to do these days with <laughs> loans with option to buy and such. But uh, yes, just my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I should just call it a uh, Chelsea style, the Chelsea style transfer now. Five year loan with an obligation, maybe to potentially possibly buy someone. It's like okay, yeah. I think AC Milan will be then loaning out our entire loan army. If I'm honest, I mean they have been playing us like a fiddle these past few seasons or years for backer Yoko. I just can't imagine that they're going to buy him. I think it's, I, I, I don't know what they're playing at. It's just ridiculous. And then they want, then they don't want, I, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's very difficult. I think 
finding a really good loan destination has become increasingly difficult. Mm. As we saw with Ethan Ampadu, for example, uh, as one of the most recent ones, um, at least on the higher level, like highest uh, domestic leagues, uh, like the Bundesliga or the Premier League. Um, yeah. I mean, regarding his contract situation, if they're going to offer him one, then it would be probably pretty soon. And maybe they're thinking, well, we don't want to sell him just yet because we just had him play Agent Rudiger and yeah. would then ha- accept a bid maybe next year when he'll hopefully still get, I don't know, 25 mil or something he'll bring in. Maybe. You never know. I like that. So we're looking at if there's any other really top quality players people in the Bundesliga that are German or speak German, then Rudiger gets another year. So Jimmy, to work well, on most definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Ram? Yeah. Um, I mean... We'll have to wait and see, basically. But I do expect him to have, or that we find out in retrospect, yeah, he had a huge handles in the habit still. Um, just like with Team Averna, it's, it's good to have, no doubt, but that just doesn't justify him being a starter or anything of the like. And thankfully, Frank Lampard isn't the kind of guy who just starts players for the sake of it. He does let people play on merit even if some would like to spin the story with Mason Mount as if he always plays doesn't matter how poorly he is performing although I I, I rarely saw a very uh, bad performance from um, Mason Mount but yeah um, I think talking about Emerson here there's no other real option than to sell him we need to sell us a third left back because we have three now at this moment in time and still Ian Madsen in the wings to help out if needed. Um, so Emerson is the one to go. I think one can make an argument. Well, well, wouldn't you agree, Joe? Marcus Alonso, Emerson. I mean, Marcus Alonso might actually bring more to the table at this time because we do play a three at the back yeah I think that that is probably the only argument you can make for keeping Alonso I think over Emerson um, I think Emerson has been a player I think kind of what you alluded to earlier that I've always felt maybe there should be more in there we should be getting more out of him um, I think after his initial kind of purple patch beginning of the season when he came back post-injury he looked just a, a shell of a player that, that he was at the beginning of the season um, and it's difficult to, to kind of predict what you're sort of going to get from him going forward, which is a shame, really, because, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it it was one of these moves that Chelsea had made a little bit in terms of looking to get a player who had just come off a major injury, you know, Rudiger being another example of that, or players who had, for whatever reason, you know, were, were perceived to be good, but maybe had had a bit of a dodgy season. Um, yeah, I think we, we managed to pick Barkley up maybe when he was sort of at his lowest, he'd had a few injuries, etc. So, we try to make these sort of almost kind of lottery ticket type type transfers where, you know, the player sort of gets back to the level pre-significant injury or kind of pre, pre-dip in form. Um, yeah, yeah. But if you have Ben Chilwell now and Ben Chilwell looks to be the, the de facto, you know, left back for the, for the future, you know, both in terms of what Lampard wants, you know, if you looked at his, his words, he spoke about his, basically his engine, his athletic capacity. 
I think, you know, Chilwell is an exceptionally good athlete in terms of his ability to get up and down all game long. Um, you know, get back, get up, get back. You know, he's, he's incredibly adept at that. Um, and yeah, so that kind of leaves you with your sort of one traditional left back. And then with Marcus Alonso, in the occasions that we do shift to a back three, I mean, it's as crazy as it sounds. Alonso is, for me, a, a phenomenal wing back. Um, you know, Absolutely. he doesn't have to do, you know, do as much of the one-on-one defending. He's got a little bit more help with the third centre-back. Um, and what he gives you going forward is ability to add goals. You know, he is, he is still really, really good in that position. So I think, yeah, in terms, of, in terms of the flexibility that Lampard will be looking for going forward, I think we'll play a back four predominantly for most of the season. But in those occasions that you want to switch, having Alonso there instead of maybe Emerson, I think gives you a little bit more flexibility in what you can add. And again, if Chilwell does get injured, then Alonso, is, he's, he's not a fantastic left back, but he can certainly do a job there. Um, and he has the height, obviously. I mean, we know about the, the argument for him being in the team because of his height and his, his ability to mm. inherit, etc. So I think, yeah, I mean, it does kind, of, does kind of make a little bit more sense if you look at it in the context of, of switching to a back three, potentially, but also just his, his aerial presence, which we know, obviously, has been one of our sort of most significant weaknesses this season, is trying to, to deal with crosses. Well, I mean, <laughs> talk about crosses and every Chelsea fan will just shriek out in terror after this season, right? I mean, we are like the, uh, the sort of the vampire back four in that, you know, we just literally, we don't deal well with crosses in any, in any kind of circumstance. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's becoming a running joke. I mean, I, I think what, what amused me is I think I pointed this out quite early on in Sari's reign that we, we were no longer very good at dealing with crosses. And I think someone came back to me and said, oh, but we'd only conceded two goals. From them and I was like, okay, just just watch how we defend them. And then I think this season, obviously, without the kind of the, the sorry structure in place, you know, we've gone a little bit more haphazard. And then, you know, I think every time someone has a corner or a free kick or even a throw in or the ability to put a cross in, every Chelsea fan is like gripping their seat or just sort of trying not to look at the television to, to sort of avoid the, the inevitable of someone else sort of getting in and, and, and scoring. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a huge thing that we need to sort out this season is just literally, you know, how can we get ahead on the ball rather than, uh, you know, sort of uh, the occasions we've seen where teams are just so, it's so simple for them to just put a dangerous cross in and score. Yeah, and well, while we're, um, we're talking about crosses, it's, um, it's kind of an issue with most of our defenders, or at least it seemed to be this season. And one of them is obviously Fikayo Tomori. So f- talking about Fikayo Tomori, his, um, his aerial ability was something that kind of raised a few question marks at senior level when I watched him. And I was just, um, I mean, I have been looking through numbers for for a while now, and it's um, it's probably not something that you actually need to look at stats to figure out, but players that come out of academies um, that play in Premier League 2 and such, where the ball is seldom in the air and they're not really presented with many of these situations where they need to be, which require them to be very astute at defending in the air. So when a, when a player suddenly moves up to the championship or such, then he's he's automatically amongst the centre-backs that rank like the lowest among win percentages for aerial duels. It's just, it's it's like a trend. It's like a given that it's always the experienced players that will be, you know, at the the, the high-ranking ones when you look at win percentages. And the the young guys will be well, among the worst. So it's, uh, it's obviously something that 
does get better over time, uh, given the fact that these guys probably won't grow anymore after this. But in terms of what has been discussed about Fikai Tomori recently, with Thiago Silva coming in and someone like Rudiger potentially being difficult to offload if Lampard did want to offload him, it seems as if the path of like least resistance would be to loan out Fikayo Tomori, given he's the only loanable player yet, like someone who could still go out for a season and not be completely disillusioned and maybe come back the next year and probably be a consistent starter. But obviously, I, I beg to defer with that because I thought he was actually quite impressive when he did play for us, although he did have these brief really lapses in com- concentration. But anyway... Even though circumstances seem to point towards loaning Tomori to be the convenient thing to do for this season, Joe, how would how would you handle the situation? Because, I mean, despite the fact that Clark Salter started the fa- started the friendly, and despite the fact that he's left-footed, I'm pretty sure he's not going to stick around this season, and he shouldn't for the for the good of his development. Uh, yeah, given, I, given, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Given he's uh, he's finally picked up some good career momentum after. Pretty shaky spells at uh, you know Bristol Rovers and then Sunderland, so yeah, it's it's a uh, when it comes to what to do about Fikayo Tomori, it's something that we've been discussing uh, every other podcast really because you know that if you have to improve on our defense, then someone has to be let go. And would it be Tomori for you at this point, given the fact that he could potentially come back after a year? Uh, just before you answer, Joe, just to add to that, um, because we're going to actually nearly do that about every other defender that we have. Zuma, Chris, I mean, <laughs> you'd think Zuma would stay, but, you know, it is debate because there were rumors. Christensen, Ampadu, you know, one can do that about every one of them. So thinking about tomorrow, maybe also mention what do you think about Christensen staying as well? So I think... Well, now, now because I'm leaving Denmark, I can be slightly more honest about Andreas Christensen, um, <laughs> first and foremost. But uh, <laughs> I, think, I think with AC, I have, I, I'd say I've come to the conclusion. I, I'm not saying I'm the only person that's come to the conclusion, but uh, I, certainly I'd say as, as the season progressed, I think that there is a clear case that if you are a Premier League team who consistently plays with a back three, that Andreas Christensen would start as your middle centre-back and he'd be very good. He'd be a very, very good player there. And you could, could probably build a, a back back three around him with two complementary centre-backs and he would be a, an excellent player. I think in the Premier League, what we have seen when he starts consistently in, in a back two, yes, he'll have some good moments. But, I mean, if you think people talk about his best game, the Manchester City game, you know, they didn't really play with a centre-forward. You know, so, I mean, it's a little bit easier to, to maybe play when you're not actually having to physically mark someone or be maybe worried implicitly about someone running in behind, etc., I think that he probably probably is, is both in terms of being a saleable asset and someone who would probably be better suited on the continent in terms of the way he plays. I think he would be the one that I personally would look to look to move on. You know, I know that he has suitors in Germany. I assume that he would have suitors pretty much in any sort of continental competition, um, sort of, you know, in, in terms of European football. So I think he's the one that I would look to move on. And I just think that the more that I watch him, his his lack of physicality, his his lack of kind of aggression and, and bite. And I think, you know, these are some of the things that Tomori definitely does have, is that aggression, um, you know, the sort of physicality, the athleticism. I think some of that stuff that I see with AC, you know, I just, I find that he just gets pinned too often by a, a good centre forward that I don't think he really competes as much as I'd like. 
And I think that he does get targeted quite a bit when playing in the two. So if I was Chelsea, I would be looking at taking the the decision um, that I think Christensen obviously has retains a lot of value. I certainly think he's he would be incredibly prized in Germany, um, where he you know he's more than capable of playing in the two there. I think again, yeah, if you're playing a back three or, or a back two in Germany, that he would be someone that I'd certainly be looking to 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 shift on. Um, and then it comes more towards the, the kind of Tomori question where. I'm, I'm, I'm the sort of same with Ram. I think that he was, you know, I think he merited playing a lot more the second half of the season. Yes, he had injuries, but I felt that actually, you know, if you look at his season on the whole, I think that he was quite impressive. You know, yes, there were lapses of concentration, but I mean, you could you could say that about any Chelsea defender um, through the season. You know, every single one of them had lapses of concentration. Even, you know, to the most experienced guy, Aspilicueta in the first couple of games of the season, looked like he'd forgotten how to play football. And then obviously kind of grew into sort of the consistent player that we knew. So, Everyone had had these moments of or lapses of concentration. I just think with Tomori that if you are looking at potentially having a a number two to a Thiago Silva, a quicker centre back, a, a guy who's a bit more aggressive, that keeping him around for me would make sense. Um, but like sort of Clark Salter, I think that there is certainly a, a, an argument to be made about going away and playing consistent football in the Premier League. And I think Rams, you know, Rams' point about um, you know academy centre backs moving into adult football is incredibly, incredibly smart. Um, and probably Clark Sauter, given his age, is an incredibly good example of that as well. He's struggled. He's had good moments of form, kind of on loan, sort of brief patches, struggled with injuries. I think struggled to adapt to being a, a centre-back in men's football. And then last season had this kind of sort of renaissance at Birmingham where I think I'm right in saying, I mean, Ram probably watched a lot more championship football than I did, but... You know, whenever I watched him, whenever I saw feedback from Birmingham players, his name was consistently one of the ones that they were saying was, was playing exceptionally well. And when I did watch him, you know, this transformation into more of a, an adult footballer, an adult centre-back, left-footed, comfortable on the ball, but his defending, you know, his aggression, his ability to play against, you know, 28, 29-year-old centre-forwards who were trying to throw elbows and stuff like that. Super, super impressive. And I, I wouldn't want that momentum to, to stop. Because I do think when I look at him, that he has certainly the potential, if you look at the, the Birmingham loan and carrying that, that momentum forward, to play, you know, play a season in a, in a Premier League team as a, as a centre-back. You know, the left foot, obviously, is a massive, massive thing for him. Um, but I do think that he's, he's one of the ones that has had the potential for a long time. But for a number of reasons, injuries, I think some of the loan destinations have been a little bit poor for him. You know, his own adjustment to playing adult football, that things haven't just clicked for him. But... You know, I think he now has an opportunity to potentially build on the Birmingham loan, um, find a Premier League club that will play him as a centre-back, maybe someone like Crystal Palace, where the competition isn't going to be too too steep, um, and then see what he has to offer at this level. Because again, you know, left-footed centre-backs kind of come at a premium. Yes, you know, you get a lot of right-footed guys play there, of course, but it's always nice to have a bit more of a natural balance on that side. So he's one for me certainly to watch out off the back of his uh, Birmingham forms. And I know that he, he did play pretty well against uh, Brighton as well albeit quite quiet, but given Chelsea's defence is quite chaotic, I think a quiet, steady, assured performance was quite a nice thing to see. Um, so I think Clark Sorter, for me, I'd like to see him going to Premier League loan. I think I think given Rudiger and probably Christensen will stay, um, my preference would be to see Tomori go somewhere, maybe to to West Ham. You know, they, they, they're they looking for centre-back help at the moment and, and get a season of football under his belt and then sort of reevaluate when he comes back. Um, Zuma, I wouldn't, I wouldn't sell, I would loan him. I think that he is... He is our best centre-back. I think that still he suffers from this um, sort of modern perception that footballers have to be aesthetic to be good. Um, you know, he's never going to be the most aesthetically pleasing or 
silky or you know kind of yeah you know sort of this this kind of fluid center back he's going to be kind of meat and potatoes but you know strong quite powerful quick good defender you know gives you a, a powerful presence on set pieces at both ends and I think certainly pairing him with Thiago Silva would be my preference for, for the season because I think Zuma if he can learn a little bit of the bit more of the kind of experience side of the game someone that's something that Silva could teach him um, then I think again that that would elevate him to, to being someone who again could be at Chelsea for the long term so yeah I mean my my actual choice is I would like to sell Rudiger and possibly Christensen I know like a double sale would be a bit uh, a bit crazy but you know maybe a sale or a loan or whatever for one of those two and keep Tomori around but I think that the, the realistic thing that will happen is Tomori probably goes out on loan um, and in which case I would like to see Zuma and uh, Thiago Silva kind of paired up for the for the immediate future yeah, yeah, I think that is the most realistic outcome, unfortunately, because uh, I'd also want to worry. Well, unfortunately, I'm looking forward to see Zoom and Tiago Silva in, in defense, but not so much that Tomori will be leaving because let's be honest, he shouldn't be. But that's just the way it is. Um, I think similarly, where it's such a tough situation is one who i value really highly and i'm this is actually one that i'm looking forward to ask or to pose the question here ethan ampadu now i think this is a really 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 tough question should we keep him around it seems as if he is wanting to stay with the squad for the next season um do we loan him out again though his confidence might be a bit, I don't want to say shattered, because he seems as if he's always confident, um, despite that penalty giveaway yesterday. Um, but that, that Red Bull Salzburg loan, uh, Salzburg, sorry, <laughs> Leipzig loan, uh, wasn't the most successful. We, I think that's the general consensus that we can agree upon, unfortunately. Um, if Jorginho were to leave and Declan Rice... It seems West Ham won't sell this season. Maybe they still need to raise some funds. I just can't see him leaving. I'm not as optimistic about that this season. And I agree with the sentiment that has been thrown around a few times that we already have our own Declan Rice in Ethan Ampadu. I have that much confidence in him. Every time he's played for both club and country, he's been so, so, so calm on the ball. A maturity that... You rarely see at that age. Very similar, actually, with Billy Gilmer. So we are very... Um, we have two very gifted youngsters, and we are very uh, lucky to have them, both among our ranks. I, I think if we do have a crisis again at centre-back and Jorginho is sold, then there should be enough minutes in it for Ethan Ampadu. We have lots of games... Uh, to play as always we ha will have a more of a congested uh, schedule because of corona so for me Ethan Ampadu should really stay around we saw with so many youngsters last season that Frank Lampard can develop them he will give them a chance on merit if they play well with Reese James for example initially it didn't seem as if he was going to become a starter then he did become one um if Ethan Ampadu plays well, then he will play and or he performs well in, in 
in training. And that's why I think it would be the best for all parties if he would stay with the squad next season instead of loaning him out again. But I would be very curious to hear you guys, your your opinions. You know, what what, what do you think? Should we keep Ethan Ampadu? Should we not? Um, just to take turns here, Ram, what, what, what do you think? Well, on Ampadu, I think uh, I think he really needs to play. I feel as if we just didn't prioritize the right things when he was sent out on loan to Leipzig. Obviously, learning under the managerial genius that is uh, Julian Nagelsmann, and um, I'm not learning his principles of football. Obviously, all very educational. All very. Um, I'm having the same energy as Chaloba going to Napoli, learn under Sari. But he needs to play. He's um, turning 20 in a fortnight, I think. And by this point, it just feels as if he's had injuries at kind of crucial junctures in his development where he was meant to push on. And it's it's kind of been pretty freaky that most times, or if not all times, that he has played for Wales, he's kind of gone off to a knock, which has uh, kind of been weird. But... What I'm saying is, um, at this point, I think it's very important to prioritize the fact that he plays enough minutes and that he develops because uh, he can he can have all the talent in the world, and clearly he does. And he's literally not looked, um, you know, he's never looked, looked not ready to me, uh, regardless of whether it was him playing for Conte at 17 or 18 or whenever. He's, he's always looked ready to play senior football. And it it kind of makes it all the more baffling that he's barely played any in his career so far compared to compared to his level of talent. So, you know, ideally the thing that we should have done was probably give him to Norwich City, uh, but they've taken Oliver Skip now for the same role, which is kind of disappointing. So I think that avenue sort of closed up for him. Uh, Fulham wanted him. They're getting Florentino Luis now, which is a bit, which is a bit cavalier, but that's Fulham. Um, so it's uh, it's it's kind of weird. Uh, I'm sure that there won't be any lack of suitors for Ampadu, given uh, Premier League teams wanted him last season as well. But yeah, as as far as Chelsea's decision goes, unless you know he's in a position where he can play about 1,500 minutes or thereabouts this season, and mind you, that that may not be impossible because it is a season which is going to have a lot of games in. A shorter span of time than usual, but if this is not going to be the case, then they should absolutely look to loan him out. And he he just needs to get a season of like three thousand minutes into his season. Uh, in I mean into his system, it just it is so crucial to his development. I just cannot say that enough. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm very interested to hear what Joe has to say about this, given it's a. Uh, it's kind of it's kind of become a bit of a frustrating situation, even though he is still only just turning twenty. But uh, yeah, we, we've we've been burnt several times with this kind of situation, haven't we? So yeah, uh, we we'll take a short break and then we'll have Joe's take on this. Welcome back. And as we were uh, talking about before the break, Ethan Amperu, Joe, what would you do with him this season? Would you loan him out? Oh, it's a tough question. Um, so with, with Amperu, I think. I have two trains of thought. One of them is his his own personal development. I think the other is my sort of pure pure kind of uh, yeah 
selfish desires to have someone in Chelsea's midfield who can fly tackle people <laughs> when, when we need it to happen. But um, yeah, I mean, you look at his his career to date, and I, I think I'm right in saying that if you look at top tier football at 20, I think he's played just about 900 minutes of football, so equivalent of about 10 games, which is not a great deal. When you combine it with his, with his if we've, um, sorry, if you combine it with his Exeter days, I think he's played about 1800 minutes of adult football so far, which you know, when you've got Ram saying that he he would like him to get 1,500 minutes in a season, gives you the context of, of where his career has been in terms of trajectory. You know, he's been playing first-team football since 2016, so in four years or four seasons, whatever. Um, you know, 1,800 minutes of football, and only 900 of them have been in a in a sort of a top league. Um, Chelsea, I think about 600, and uh, yeah, Red Bull, I think about 300. So not a great deal of, of football has been played by Ethan Ampadu. And I think as someone who I think maybe has suffered a little bit from being a bit versatile, and I felt certainly that this was something that hindered Nathan Ake when he was at Chelsea, you know, this ability to play both as a centre-back and as a holding player. You know, in Ake's case, he was a left-back, left-wing-back, centre-back. Um, you know, he could play pretty much anywhere, really, that you needed him to. But Ampadu, I think his versatility has hurt him a little bit. Um, so I think the first thing that, that Chelsea need to look at with him is nailing down a position that he is going to go and play in the future. And I like kind of a little bit like what they've done with Trevor Chalabar in that he was very much a centre-back in the academy kind of days and he is now sort of going out and playing men's first in football and the decision has kind of been, OK, now, now we see you as more kind of a central midfielder, holding midfielder, whatever, like that, that's where you're going to play. Um, I feel a similar decision needs to happen with Ampadu in that they need to determine whether he is a, a centre-back or whether he is a holding player. And then sort of make the, the right decision. Um, you know, if Jorginho goes, then that kind of leaves you with, with Kante as kind of the odd fit there. Um, but then it has to be a question of, of how much football he plays for Chelsea in that position this season. You know, Ram's point, I think 1,500 minutes for me. I, I think that he, for me, for him to develop, he's, he's got to be looking at 2,000 plus. Um, if, if 1,500 at Chelsea, I think that's fine. Um, but in terms of actually him developing and cementing a position in, in adult football, um, 2,000 minutes, I think, would be would be useful. The Norwich kind of links are a bit, as uh, Ram mentioned, are a bit disappointing that he's, or that we've not been able to take advantage of those. And I, I do hear a lot of things from the club that, you know, Ampadu does want to stay around, but there's no point him him staying and, and not playing. So there has to be a real kind of plan for him to get minutes. I still think that he has a lot of skills that I would, I would want to see in a DM. You know, I, I'm not someone who, certainly in the system that Lampard is trying to put into place, I don't think you really need like a creative deep-flying playmaker type. I think you need an, an anchor man who can defend counter-attacks, can defend transitions, can defend one-on-ones, can, can cover fullbacks, can cover space. And I think Ampadu certainly, he's, you know, he's, nobody's going to confuse him with an Olympic sprinter, but he is he's certainly quick, athletic and powerful and he can cover those gaps. You know, I think he's an excellent one-on-one defender, certainly when it comes to tackling. You know, he's strong. And I think hopefully looking at his, his sort of kind of spate of injuries that he's had, I think it's noted that he's had a bit of a physical kind of transformation in the past year or so. He seems to have grown a fair bit, seems to put on a bit of good weight. So I'm just hoping that a lot of these kind of issues that he's had injury-wise have just been sort of growing pain related. Um, you know, the most, obviously, as I said, the most famous case, but obviously something that Ruben Loftus-Cheek has struggled with when he had this sort of crazy growth spurt and sort of getting used to his body and, and biomechanics and all this sort of stuff. I think Ampadu, may, maybe, well, he hasn't gone through like a five-inch growth spurt, he's certainly grown and filled out. Um, so maybe I think now that he's slightly more into his kind of adult body that we can expect him to be a little bit more robust going forward. But, 
you know, if you're going to play a, a definitive holding number six who is there to hold, to break up, to cover the two central midfielders, to cover the fullback areas, to act as a screen in front of two centre-backs, to be a definitive number six, you know, somebody who's not going to be in the penalty area, who's not going to be pressing centre-backs, who's not going to be ahead of the ball. I think Ampadu certainly fits the bill, you know, and with kind of Kante potentially, um, you know, his kind of injury problems and maybe his, his kind of workload will be managed a bit more this season. That does leave room for a more definitive holding player to, to play there. And if Chelsea don't go in and sign someone like Declan Rice, I think Ampadu certainly fits the bill. So I think I would like to, I would like to keep him around, but that would be with the caveat that there is a defined position that he's going to play in. And there is a, an expectation that he plays a certain number of minutes. He gets all the cup games, you know, the, the one game that, or the, you know, the top one time, the Champions League where we play someone from the middle of nowhere. Um, and then potentially, you know, if Kante's injured or he manages to work himself into the team, then he keeps his position. But, you know, I think he's a fascinating player. I think he gives us physicality. He gives us a bit of, bit of quality on the ball as well. Um, but just from a pure defensive standpoint, he is a player that you can put there who would enable you to play two more offensive-minded central midfielders either side of him because he can just sit and hold and be that guy who is not going to be sort of trying to you know, join up and, and, and sort of become part of the attack. He will sit. He will be the guy who can recycle ball left, left and right. He can cover space. He can defend transitions. You know, I think that he fits from that perspective. So as long as Chelsea have a plan for him, I'd like him to stay. But if, if the idea is, you know, if Jorginho is staying, they're going for Declan Rice, et cetera, um, he has to, for me, go and play a, a season of football somewhere. And, and if that is in the championship for a top team where he plays every week, that's fine. Um, but if he goes to a, a, a Premier League team, it has to be somewhere where he can compete and get minutes. Yeah, I mean, to be I'll agree with that, of course. Uh, I mean, I'm, I said that I really do want Ethan Ampadu to stay with the team, but if we were, for example, to bring in Declan Rice, then it's obvious. I mean, it's self-explanatory that then he has to go out and uh, get minutes elsewhere. Um, but yeah, no, I, I fully agree with you, Joe, uh, on the general sentiment regarding the player. And I can only echo that. I mean... One thing one has to keep in mind when we're talking about this whole keep, sell, loan uh, players, we're, of course, not addressing players like uh, a Christian Pulisic or maybe a bit less obvious, a Reese James or the likes, which are obvious not to leave Chelsea this year or this summer. And also not ones like, for example, an Emerson or Bakayoko. Or... Actually, drink water is not that certain because no one can really afford his wages, but those kind of players where you think, okay, they're obvious they have to leave. And um, that's why a name like Ethan Ampadu does come up or a Christensen or a Rudiger. Uh, I think one more, which you already partially mentioned, Joe, which is the most interesting one is Jorginho. I think that will be very interesting to see. So I agree that, you know, then Ethan Ampadu could take up also that position. Um, whether he'll stay or not. Um, I mean, I think it depends entirely on whether any Italian team can afford to take him on with his wages during this crisis. It's all very uncertain. AS Roma has been touted, generally speaking, and I know that, and correct me if I'm wrong here, you... Both are actually more in the camp of uh, Sebastian Chapuis. 
if I uh, pronounce it correctly, <laughs> um, Sebsi, in regard to Jorginho, I think it's very harsh how he addresses it. You know, we can argue whether or not we still need Jorginho, if, especially if Declan Rice comes in. I think then it's certain that he'll be leaving. But already at this point, um, Jorginho is a very niche player. Uh, also a very obvious <laughs> fact that has established itself over the past two seasons um, or the last two that he's been featuring in them for Chelsea I still think that given the right system he's a fantastic player for Chelsea he's one that barks out orders when and that is one of the main problems last from last season that the communication no one seems to talk with each other. No one seems to take up responsibility. Even, and that has to be said, Cesar Spilicueta, our captain, who just, for me, isn't the kind of captain material that you will ever get with, for example, John Terry or Tugargo Silva even. Although I still think he should be staying captain, just on a side note. Um, that's the only right thing to do. But, you know, he isn't as vocal as he should be. Um, and that has been a problem. And Jorginho is vocal. Of course, he has his... His downsides is his disadvantages, but I think it, his time will be coming at, to an end this season. Um, whether or not we really should be contemplating to loan him out and with an obligation to buy or not, that I think is uh, we shouldn't do that. Either we outright sell him to gain some funds for Declan Rice or leave him in the team because in certain instances he's still a very very good player to have and as said i'm just waiting for what you're gonna say about this joe because i said you you know you're not too fond of him if i remember correctly <laughs> yeah um me, me and georgie and georgie <laughs> fans um no i mean i've i've never quite i've never quite seen it in the player and I say, I say this both from a technical perspective. So I think one of the less known things about me was I used to play academy football in England until I was about 16. Um, I used to be a holding midfielder. So I do have a little bit of knowledge in terms of how you play the role. So I think when people sometimes accuse me of, uh, of certain biases, I'm like, well, I have, I have got a little bit of experience in terms of, in terms of playing that. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the way football is trending at the moment, this whole kind of, uh, you know, pace and power, physicality, you know, the era of, of, of technical players dying out. I think if you go through all of the, the top 10, maybe 12 sides in European football, I think everyone pretty much, bar Juventus for obvious reasons, given who the manager was, um, have a player who is either superbly defensive and, and, and top tier in that position or a destroyer or you know, like a really kind of powerful physical player in that role. You go from like Casemiro to, you know, Gay and 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 at, at PSG, you've got Thomas Partey, you've got, you know, Kimmich moving from fullback to playing as a DM for quite quite a bit for Bayern Munich this season. You know, there, there are loads of examples of the, the profile of player in that position is now changing. And I think certainly when you look at the way Lampard wants to set the team up, I think the bare minimum requirement that you have to be to play the holding role in this team is you have to be an athlete. And as much as that will annoy people when it sounds like an overly sort of Brexity opinion, if you want to have two attacking central midfielders who, sure, they're going to come back and defend, but their priority is to, to link up with the front three, you have to have someone who is comfortable defending a lot of space by themselves. Um, and my, my contentions with Jorginho have never been that his personality as a player. I think he's got a great personality. I think he has leadership qualities. I think he is a 
a really elite professional in terms of how he conducts himself. But his tendencies, and, and you've, you've even got you know, coaches and analysts from Manchester City doing actual presentations to the public about how they exploited Jorginho whenever they played against Chelsea. So it's not just me, Seb, Ram, other people who are picking on him. It's, it's actual real top top tier elite coaches have actually said, well, you know, we know he jumps out of position. So we, we, we set this pressing trap. He jumped out three passes later, we scored a goal. You know, that was kind of the, the basis of their, of their analysis. So, you know, when you have a DM who is caught pressing centre-backs, who is caught pressing full-backs, who likes to jump out of position, who likes to, to press in the final third, you either have to have the other central midfielder has to be filling in, filling in the space. Or you've got to be an absolute top-tier athlete to get back from the edge of their penalty area to come back and make the tackle. And I think as long as he is here, as long as he is the defensive midfielder at Chelsea, we will always have the same issue in terms of defending in transition because he is often ahead of the ball. He often gets caught ahead of the ball. Um, and that relationship with Kovacic, both of them tend to be ahead of the ball. And I, I just don't see how, how that translates to, to the, this kind of pace and style that Chelsea want to play in the future. I think Lampard's comments after the FA Cup final were very pointed. You know, we went a goal up and then we had you know, players who were just content on playing like, like it was five-a-side football playing five-yard passes. And I think that was kind of a little bit of a dig at Kovacic and a little bit of a dig at uh, Jorginho in, in how, they, how they want to play the game. And I, I do think, you know, all of this contention about him being a player who builds play up, I think he slows the game down immensely in terms of him in possession. You know, for, for the one pass against Watford, that fantastic ball, and it was, you know, admittedly an absolutely incredible pass that he played to Tammy for the goal. He must hit that 60, 70 times a season and it comes off once and then people sort of make compilations about it for, you know, for the next two years. Um, I don't think he has enough passing quality to, to, to make up for his past, you know, his deficiencies as a, as a defender. And people can throw all of the defensive numbers and all of the statistics and all of the spice sports stuff at me in general. As someone who has actually gone in and looked at where these interceptions are made, where these tackles are won, very rarely are they in front of the back four, very rarely are they in the, in the defensive third. And it's great, yeah, it's great that we can win, win the ball high up the pitch. But if you miss that three times in a game and you make, you make you know, one tackle, one interception in the final third, you miss it three times, they're, they're, they're in on us every single time. Um, I think the, the, the worst example was probably from Norwich earlier in the season. You know, he jumps out twice, they score twice. Um, and, and this is Norwich, this isn't a, a fantastic team. Um, and that's always been my concern is that for that position, the way Lampard wants to play, the way that I view that position, it has to be about defending, defending space and being a, a, a player that is aware of, of the, the game state. You know, you shouldn't be pressing centre-backs. You shouldn't be pressing right-backs. You should be filling in. You should be dropping in. You should be protecting your centre-backs. And maybe that, that's my own personal view of the position, um, being that it's somebody that should be defensive first and then look to play rather than somebody who is there to, to dictate play, etc. And I think as well, when you have someone like Kovacic in the team, you don't need two players doing the same thing. Um, and that's often always, I think, been, been slightly counter- counterintuitive when we play teams who play low blocks who play incredibly defensive you know you can see I think even the, in the restart game the Aston Villa game all we were doing was just shifting the ball left to right little five-yard passes no incisive passes no risky passes nobody willing to, to take that chance and try and punch a ball into a, a striker's feet or between the lines and, and that's kind of the, the, the sort of my, my main objection is that I just don't see in, in the, the style of the, the team going forward playing with a lot more pace playing quicker um, freeing up the, the, the two central midfielders, freeing up the attack to attack. I just don't see where he fits. And again, you know, I think people take this the, the wrong way. It, it's it's not, nothing to do with him as a, a professional to sort of, you know, reiterate it. I think he's, a, he's been a great professional. He's great around the club. You know, I often hear feedback from, 
from friends who have links into the academy that he's great with young players. He's a really good person for players to go and bounce their ideas off of. However, if you can't acknowledge that his physical deficiencies are a massive hindrance to the team, then I have to say that we, we're often watching the, the wrong sport. Um, you know, that football is trending into, a, into an era. You look at the, the Bayern team, frightening athletes who can play football. You know, it's not, it's not just a, you know, sort of Barcelona where you have the, the best 11 technical players in the world who can outplay you. Um, and I think if, that's, if that is where football is trending and, and it seems to be, you know, Lampard's comments about Chirwell being an athlete and all this sort of stuff he was saying about him, then I just don't see there being a position for him in the team. Um, but yeah, you know, it's going to be difficult to offload him. And, you know, considering the, the opinion of a lot of, of, of fans is that he's this elite, you know, kind of elite world-class player. But don't, there doesn't really seem to be that many teams coming in for him. Um, I think he's quite, as you mentioned, quite a niche player, quite a specialist player in terms of the role that he wants to fulfil. And potentially we're seeing certainly the way teams are trending now that that role may be dying out. So it's going to be difficult to, to offload him. Um, maybe Roma, maybe another Italian team will look at him and, and consider him to be a player that can play in the midfield. But I think in terms of the future of Chelsea, the future of Frank Lampard's coaching style and certainly the way that the European football is going, that uh, having someone who who physically can't cover the amount of space that will be there this season is going to be problematic. So, yeah, I mean, for all of the for all of the, the the jokes, you know, the Seb C stuff. Okay, you know, I know he goes a little bit <laughs> he goes a little bit on to the extreme lengths, but I think a lot of my my criticism is purely rooted in the fact that I don't think that he can he can provide the level of defensive cover that I personally would want from a holding player in this team now, but also in the next two three seasons. I want someone who in there who is who's an athlete who is is great defensively. You know who can then enable others to play ahead of him, and I don't think really that that is the the profile of player that Jorginho is, or that potentially he could be. I agree in the right system, right fit. You know, I think he's still a useful player, but you know, looking at sort of the European football trends, I think the the way the game is moving is, is moving away from that. So I'm less inclined to say that he is um, someone who could go elsewhere and maybe be a, a superstar player as well. I appreciate I've ranted a bit there, but <laughs> <laughs> no, fair enough. I, I think yeah. a good I answer. Think you've, uh, yeah, it, it's. Basically, I think a hundred percent what I think about Jorginho's part, and in light in light of that, I think it's probably a good it's a good way to segue into the next player that we were planning to ask you about, which is uh, Billy the, Billy the Kid, of course. <laughs> Billy Goat, <laughs> our <Yeah>. savior. <laughs> he, he's um he, he kind of seemed to have overtaken Jorginho for a bit there in the pecking order after, I mean, kind of before before restart, I guess Jorginho was suspended, but after restart as well, Kili, uh, Billy Gilmore seemed to be in favour and it was kind of unfortunate that he suffered an injury of his own and had to miss out, but, you know, um, it's a f- fresh start now and if, uh, if things were to remain as they were now and we didn't bring in anyone else to play the same role as Jorginho, or Gilmore, who who do you think would do you think that their minutes would be split a lot more evenly than they were last season? And that is assuming he stays, of course. So, firstly, would you keep Gilmore? And secondly, do you see him playing? Let's say again, a thousand five hundred is the benchmark. So, do you see him playing mm. at least that many minutes? Oh, see, this one's probably one of the tougher ones because I think in terms of ability that he has, he has something to offer the team. And I think for me, it would be very much dependent on whether Jorginho stays or goes. If Jorginho stays, um, then my, my preference would be, would be for to, to loan Gilmore, um, potentially to a, a top a top champion team. I think, again, for me, the, 
I want to say the transition to adult football for someone in his position, I think he will need to start learning the, the other side of the game. And it's by no stretch of imagination, is he bad defensively? But, you know, coming from an academy team that is entirely dominant in possession and plays very much on the front foot for, I don't know, 90, 95% of the teams that they play against, to go into a slightly more balanced situation where he's expected to, to be more defensively aware, to be more cognizant of, of that side of the game, I think would be very beneficial for him in the long run. Um, you know, post-lockdown, I think a lot of his little kind of dip that, he, that we saw from him, certainly in the Leicester game, I think a lot of that is just the fact that, you know, he's, he hasn't played football for two, to whatever it was, two, three months at the time. And, and I think a lot of the younger players were a bit rusty compared to more of the experienced guys. But I think, yeah, it, it has to come to a point now for him where I think he, he needs to go and experience um, adult football. He needs to go and play men, uh, you know, kind of every single week and play men's football every single week and then start developing those nuances of the game, which he probably hasn't had to develop or lean on too much in the, in the Chelsea Academy system. So, you know, uh, it's very, very similar to, to Jorginho in that respect in terms of positioning and, 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 and where to kind of position yourself, both when you're attacking and sort of, you know, pure, pure defensive positioning, um, you know, how to, how to effectively play, you know, when your team isn't ball dominant, when you're effectively on the back foot for the majority of the game, you know, what kind of, what kind of player does he become then when his team are, are defending for 60, 70, 80 minutes of a game? How can he impact the game positively, you know, when he's not on the ball? So I think that the, the loan for him does make a lot of sense. If Jorginho were to go, I think that he certainly stays. I think he gives you the option then to have that, uh, you know, more of a, a pass first option as the holding player. Could be again, that, um, you know, when, if Chelsea have the same issues that they face with a lot of deep block teams this season, that having Gilmore, who I think probably is a more aggressive um Certainly, it may be a little bit more of a, a talented passer than Jorginho in terms of the types of passes he can see and execute. Having someone sit there and play those passes is probably a, a good idea to have on the bench or to have as a starting option. Um, but it, it, it would be very dependent, I think, on, on whether Jorginho stays or go. I tend to think, actually, that this season, that if Chelsea don't sign anyone, that I think Ngolo Kante will play the sixth role quite a bit, um, both because I just think that that is somewhere that Potentially, you can extend his career. I know that we've seen a lot of injury problems with Kante recently. There's a lot of wear and tear there. He's played an awful lot of football. Um, I think playing him as a number six and maybe trying to transform and sort of transition him into being more of a pure holder. There's someone who isn't, isn't leading the press, who isn't kind of leaving his position more of a sort of specific reference point. Maybe he's doing less running, less explosive movements. You're kind of prolonging his career a bit and you're still getting that kind of solid defensive instincts, obviously, that he has. Um, so I think potentially that we will see a lot of Kante in the sixth season. Then I think Jorginho um, or, or Gilmore, whoever is, is here, will give you the, the rotation or the ability to, to play a slightly different profile of player against uh, certain teams. You know, I, I'm not against having a, a passer um, play as a six, certainly against some of the teams who, who sit deep against us. But in terms of that passer, they have to be someone who is maybe not quite at a Cesc Fabregas level. I mean, that's, that's a very difficult kind of, obviously, player to find, but someone who at least has the the vision and the ball striking quality and the ability to hit some of those um, riskier passes, you know, fizz them across the pitch, make the, make the kind of diagonal stick rather than some of sort of the floatier stuff that, that Georgie plays at times. So I think, yeah, I mean, it gives you kind of a nice potential different way to, to attack some of these teams that we've seen really kind of suffocate and, and frustrate us this season. Um, but I think, yeah, if, if, if Georgino goes and I think Gilmore stays, if Georgino stays, then I, I would be very much looking for Gilmore to go to, as I said, maybe a, a top championship side, a championship side who like to play football, who like to get on the ball um, and give them him for, for the season and just get him accustomed to uh, and acclimatised to playing adult football every single week.
Yeah, that would that would make sense, I guess. And it's it's kind of Georgina is one of those people who's uh, looking a little difficult to offload anyway now, given um, given sorry, sorry. yeah. <laughs> although although like um, Pillow is not, he, I wouldn't be surprised if he happened to wake up one day and say, "I want Georgina." But yeah, anyway, um, hmm, I suppose actually, that. No, go so, on. Sorry. So, sorry, Ram. Can I just add, uh, extend that? Yeah. Okay. If Jorginho doesn't stay, if he does stay, then we loan him out. But if he does go and we bring in Declan Rice, which isn't no, it's out of the realm of possibility. It's exactly very much possible. I mean, we would probably never have expected to be having the ins that we have had at the start of yeah. this year. So you never know nowadays with Chelsea, they're a bit um, predictable, which is a good thing in this case. Um, but does one keep him when Declan Rice comes? I mean, one could say, is, is it applicable one-to-one in regards to, okay, Declan Rice will be in front of him. But then again, Declan Rice, sense, might, yeah, but it's Declan a... Rice can also play at centre-back, right? He, yeah, I mean, I suppose, yeah, I suppose he can. But then, having having Rice in the squad, and yeah, I mean, I guess. But then it kind of reshuffles your centre backs as well in that case, and that might mean you have to let go of another centre back because I don't think. Christensen. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> perhaps. Yeah, in a world where we let go of another centre back, then maybe you have Jorginho and Rice in the same in the same squad. But I mean, ideally. Jorginho was made redundant if Rice was brought into the squad because essentially he'd be, um, I don't know, either the first choice centre-back along with someone else or the DM to kind of step in when Conte isn't able to play. And that would make Jorginho pretty useless. So there's that. Uh, Overall, though, I think um, we've covered a pretty good range of players, Um, basically most of them who had question marks hanging over their future except like the really obvious ones like Bachuai and such, that there will be, I think we should expect to see a fair amount of outgoings in the coming six months at least, if not if not the coming two months, given, I don't know, maybe Lampard might want to have a slightly larger squad for the first six months of the season. But there will be, there will be a lot of outgoings and we probably covered most of those players today. So I think... Uh, being conscious of not wanting to take too much of Joe's time either. It's um, it's probably a decent note to uh, end the podcast, I suppose. So that's uh, that's wraps on this, well, the 2019-20 season of We Ain't Got No Podcast, a whole, I mean, more than 365 days after it started. <laughs> Just happened yeah. to the things turned out the way they did, but... Yeah, Jimmy, it's uh, it's been quite nice, hasn't it? I I definitely didn't expect to be doing this like 13 months ago, uh, so yeah. uh, that, that's been cool. And we've we've got to speak to a lot of a lot of really awesome people, including Joe, twice now. So, Joe, thanks a lot for being part of our podcast twice this season and today, of course. And. I, I suppose that's that's it from the Encarnabar podcast for 2019-20 yeah. from, uh, from Ram and Jimmy and everyone else at the Encarnabar history. See you Thank in 2019. Thank you all.
20, yeah. See you in 2020-21, I guess. And that's that's in like two weeks. Two so. weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's like saying Happy New Year on, I mean, see you next year on like December 31st. Or something. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's it from us. See ya.